Welcome to the Supported Living Property Podcast with your host, me, Lisa Brown, the place to learn about supported living property investing. In this episode, Chris Hatton and Lauren Blood talk about the 200 Lives Research Project. They discuss their findings from interviewing people with learning disabilities about supported living and residential care. There are many useful learning points to take away from this episode, whether you're a service provider or a property developer. Hi, it's great to have you both here today. How are you? Very well, thank you. Um, unfortunately, I'm in my son's bedroom because of road work, so it's an interesting environment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had a conversation about teenage boys' bedrooms <laughs> earlier, didn't we? Yeah, not necessarily a place of choice, I'm sure. <laughs> Lauren, lovely to have you here today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, happy to be here. Do you want to introduce yourself and um, tell people a bit about you, Lauren, if you start with yeah. Uh Yeah, so I'm Lauren Blood. Um, I work at the National Development Team for Inclusion, NDTI. Um, I'm a research officer there. Um, and I spent about two years working on this project that we're going to be talking about today, uh, 200 Lives. Um, so, yeah, we'll be hearing more about that. <laughs> Fantastic. And mm. Chris, just introduce yourself, please. Yeah, I'm Chris Hatton. I'm a professor of social care at Manchester Metropolitan University, also a member of the team. The project was uh, long in the making and long in the doing. So it's we're very chuffed to have some findings to be able to share with people. Fantastic. It's great to have you here today. I guess, you know, going right back to the beginning of this, you know, what was the aims of the study when you, you set out to do this? Um, what were you trying to achieve? I think the aims of the project were really straightforward. So some 20 years before, I've been involved in research that was looking at the quality and costs of what was then group homes, residential care, some kind of larger establishments for people with learning disabilities. And really, I think in the 20 years since, there's been very little evidence for service providers, commissioners, and people with learning disabilities to go on sort of decent research evidence about um, what the quality of supported living and residential care are for adults with learning disabilities, what the costs are linked with that, and um, and what makes a good home for people. And really important stuff, because we talk about supported living so much, don't we? Lots of local authority you know, members, providers, everyone's talking about it as a really great way to deliver care, but actually you're right, there's very little evidence behind that. So yeah, really important. Um, how did you actually go about doing this then? What, what did, how did you, it's a, a big thing to try and achieve, isn't it? Yeah, so um, I think it's important to say we started the project in February 2020. So Ooh. obviously not the ideal time <laughs> to be um, starting something um, as obviously there was quite a lot of disruption from COVID. Um, and we had been sort of hoping to visit a lot of people at home. Um, and obviously that wasn't possible um, for everyone because of COVID restrictions. Um, so we had to pivot slightly, but we still managed to get sort of quite a lot of people interested in wanting to take part. Um, so we sort of put a call out to different residential care and supported living providers and just said, would you be interested in sort of contributing to the research? And if so, can you put us in touch with people who you support who might want to take part? So we sort of went to the different providers first and we had loads of people, loads of providers who were really interested um, but obviously with COVID, it was uh, different sort of how many actually were able to find people and how many weren't. And we had a real range, like some put forward one person, some I think the most we had was maybe, I think it was about 16 or 17 people from the same provider. And again, a real mixture of 
some people who live by themselves, some people who live in houses of up to 10 people. Sometimes we'd speak to just one person. Sometimes we'd speak to their housemates as well. Um, So it was really varied. And then what the main part of the research, I guess, was speaking to people with learning disabilities um, and asking them some questions about where they live and what they think about it. Um, And then we were really keen to also get a broader understanding of their life in general. So it's not just their house, but it's also how does their house fit into their life? What kind of life do they have? Um, Does it help them to have a good life? So we spent... um, we did have quite a lot of questions. So we often spoke to people more than once, maybe two or three times um, and mostly over Zoom, which was quite interesting. Uh, get a little peek into people's people's rooms and meet their pets and things like that. Um, I guess in some ways you probably saw probably a less curated version because it was over Zoom than you might have done if you'd met in a clinical room or, or something mm. like that, perhaps, you know, so. Yeah. yeah, it was interesting. And they also got to sort of see a peek into our, homes which was quite nice mm. um, it was a bit more sort of equal than us going there um, yeah. we did do some home visits towards the end um, but yeah mostly it was over zoom or over the phone um, and then we also um, asked staff support staff to fill out some questionnaires for us and this would be a bit more information about the person's life and what support they get and then if the person was happy for it we um, sent a question to their questionnaire to their family as well so they could nominate a family member, but only if they gave consent for that. And then we were trying to sort of get the family's perspective on it as well. And I think we were trying to understand um, our families having a lot more input in certain uh, contexts rather than others. Um, so we were trying to get sort of various different perspectives on it. Fantastic. So a huge amount of information gathering and then trying to pull that all together must have been a massive piece of work for you. Absolutely. Um, So I guess what were the main findings? What are the the key findings that we need to know about? So um, we've we've put together sort of 10 key findings, which you can find um, on the website um, and there's an easy read version as well. Um, but pop the links to that in the show notes so everyone can find those. Absolutely. yeah. Yeah. But broadly speaking, I think I mean, one of the things we really were interested in is what's important to people and what makes a good home for someone. Um, And we heard sort of, these were actually fairly consistent across supported living and residential care. Um, Even though we were comparing the two, there weren't huge differences in terms of what's important to someone in one would often be important to someone in another. Um, One of the real key messages is who people live with is probably one of the most important things. Um, People would consistently saying that the people they live with or the staff were one of their favorite things about where they live and equally if they didn't get along with people that would could be a real sort of make or break thing for people more so than the actual house itself um so that really needs to be considered quite carefully um and that's interesting because we did find from speaking to people that people didn't have that much choice in who they lived with or if they wanted to live with other people or live by themselves it was often they'd met people once they'll say yes but you know they didn't necessarily know them before they didn't know if it would work out so I think taking the time to uh, sort of take that process a bit more slowly would be quite important to people and then when it came to the actual house um, more so than the sort of layout of the facilities it was about people being able to put their own stamp on it so whether they were living in a shared house or their own place, 
it was really important. They took real pride in making it their own, decorating it, doing gardening, even sort of tidying and having that pride in where they were. So having that autonomy over the space, I think was really important to people and sort of putting their own mark on it. So it feels like their home. And that was in residential settings and in supported living yes. settings. That was key. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and in sort of places where people did share, it was quite important that they had space, not just in their room. So they may have their own spot that they often sit in or they have a shed or, you know, so their own sort of space extends beyond just their room. That makes okay. sense. Okay. So, so not necessarily a whole room, to, but like mm. a a chair or a part of a room that would be for them is that what you're saying yeah yeah or it just naturally sort of fell into or oh, this is my sort of zone and mm-hmm. I take charge of this bit mm. um, so just having that more autonomy I think um, and then there was a real thing around community and the place where people live and we did find that people in supported living tended to be more connected to their communities tend to live more in the community rather than sort of um, slightly separate and they were more sort of, for better or worse, more integrated into the community. The reason I say for better or worse is, again, that could be a good or a bad thing, depending on where they live. Hmm. They may be more affected by issues in the neighbourhood. Um, Such as what kind of things when you're saying issues in the neighbourhood? Um, just in terms of sort of there might be more issues with neighbours than there would be in residential care. Hmm. Um, so it's, again... The, the area is really, really important to think about and get it get it right for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so again, with supported living, sort of transport links were really important. We found that often in residential care, people were more um, go out all together, maybe have their own transport linked with the home. Whereas in supported living, it may be more important that there's sort of good bus links or good um, public transport in the area. Yeah. And I think it was really important to people that they had those sort of roots in the community. So being able to live somewhere a while, being able to know people and not just sort of, um, there, was, there was a real thing about sort of familiar faces and knowing, knowing people to say hi to. And I think that's quite important to everyone during COVID, but that really came out in this of, of sort of knowing friendly faces around and, um, feeling like you're part of the community definitely so people like people in the corner shop people neighbors people knowing people and feeling like you fit in that makes mm. perfect sense mm. yeah absolutely um brilliant were there any other key findings from there for me there's so there's so many i mean obviously all the stuff's on the on the on the site but um there is um there is a lot of stuff i guess one thing that's i think was um quite important to note was that the range of support needs of people living in supported living and residential care. So though on average, people living in residential care had greater support needs. Um, You found people with a full range of support needs in both supported living and residential care. So I guess for us, that showed that supported living can be successful with people with a full range of support needs. Um, I guess the thing that goes with that and that was linked to costings is that if you're going to support people with greater support needs, whether in sports living or residential care, you need to be prepared to resource the support properly. So supported living isn't a way of supporting people with greater support needs on the cheap. Um, so you have to resource it properly wherever that comes from. 
And in terms of costs, although we didn't get as much information on costs as we hoped for because of and the kind of COVID restrictions made it quite difficult for services, then we're really grateful to the services who helped us put this together because it's a really, really, and continues to be a really difficult time. Um, the costs um, of services were on average greater for residential care compared to supported living, and that was fairly consistent. Um, an was increase- that consistent, sorry, across the, the range of support needs? So did you find that? Yeah. Um, well, we found that, yeah, people with greater support needs tended to have support that costs more, mm, whether that was supported living or residential mm. care. But residential care was... Um, on average more expensive and that was around um, the costs of of kind of the housing that the people were in. Mm. Yeah yeah absolutely and so I guess you know as we said a lot of my listeners are are property investors or supported living providers themselves. Um, What would you say are the relevant bits from from the findings that you have the sort of key messages that people need to be aware of really to to implement in their practice going forward? I'm sure you'll chip in Lauren but if I'm kick off with a couple of things um i think one is the point i was making just now about support needs and costs that um that you need to resource support for people with greater support needs properly so that people can live a fulfilling life um and also that particularly we found with uh, relatives that kind of relatives confidence i guess in in support services relatives were really you know obviously really well tuned in to how well a service was doing um, and so that sort of extra resource really matters to for relatives to feel that their you know son or daughter usually brother or sister is somewhere that's safe and fun and fulfilling um, I think another thing um, again that we've we've spoken about is the importance of place it's really important where where somebody is living um, as well as who people are, are living with. And that is a very individualised thing, I think. That will really depend on where people's family are, what kind of place they want to live in. Um, as Lauren, you were saying about sort of bus links, and public transport links, maybe, and also things like access to work. So there was one person, for example, who they did have a job, but because it meant two bus rides and they felt quite unsafe coming home, late at night, um, they stop working in that job. So thinking about how a place kind of affords of a, a, a fulfilling life for people. I think the final thing that I will point to is the importance of not assuming that people are going to live in a kind of perpetual present, that like all of us, you know, people's aspirations, desires, wishes change over time. And the supported living and commissioners have to be ready to support people to change. That might mean, you know, changing where somebody lives. It might be somebody wanting to change who they live with. Really importantly also, I think, is accessible housing so that housing can change as people's support needs change. And I think that sort of life course, individualised perspective, which is a real challenge for commissioners to, to get their head around in the way that current systems work, but I think that that is really important for people. Yeah, that makes. 
they're, they're basic human rights, aren't they? When you're talking about them and you're listing them there, they're the things that we would all look for when we're looking for somewhere to live and what we would look for in our communities. And it's almost sad that we're having to kind of spell it out, isn't it? You know, but I guess it's, it is really key. And the fact that you've got the evidence behind it is, is so important to be able to kind of to make it clear to people. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that was stark for me, I guess, was how the picture didn't seem radically different from 20 years before when we'd been doing the research. And for all our, all our kind of innovation talk, you know, I'm sure, Lauren, you can say more about this, but, you know, the people who learned disabilities that we spoke to were so, you know, I want a front door key. I want a pet. You know, I want a job. <laughs> I want friends. I want a partner. You know, those things haven't really changed much I don't know if you've got more to add to that Lauren um I was just thinking about so one of the things we would ask both people and staff is uh, the real tendency test so it's sort of a measure of support uh, what true supported living is supposed to be I think we found only a quarter of people actually met all of the only a quarter of people's housing setups met the full um real tendency test which is quite three quarters didn't yeah that's really Mm. shocking isn't Mm. it yeah and I think within that one of the main things was about choosing where you live choosing who you live with and um also sort of choosing your support and when you get support it was quite common that people just they know when they're going to have support but they don't necessarily choose that or have control over that um things like your own front door key is sort of tended to be more um met within that and it was more um stuff around choice that that wasn't met because people are sort of told where oh there's a space in this house you're being moved into here that kind of thing has is mm. how people mm. work, work finding things and that horrible turn the void there's a void in this prophecy yeah that mm. that absolutely that's really really sad isn't it that that's still the case um I, I guess the, the key message is from, from the stuff that you're saying, you know, what do you think really needs to change, you know, going forward, what, what are the things that should be different? What should change? You know, what should, what are the key things you think need to, to be implemented going forward? That's a really good question. And I think, I think what, what we're hoping is that these findings are the start of a conversation with people with learning disabilities, families, uh, commissioners and support providers to actually work through, you know, we've, you know, we have these findings. Can we work through what they mean and what you can do practically? Because it's obviously a really difficult time mm. to be a commissioner, to be a support uh, provider. I think it's really difficult times. But I think many of these things aren't, aren't about money. They're about um, kind of relationships of respect. They're about continuity of relationships. Um, They're about, again, I come back to this sense of place, I think. That sense of place is really important. And um, I guess ways of supporting people, particularly things like paid employment, which should be a win-win. Many people want to work. The labour market now might be better for people with learning disabilities than it has been for some time, actually. So things like supporting people into work, supporting strong networks of friendships that aren't dependent on services. So I think I think there's lots that can be done with a with a change of 
kind of mindset. But I think that's that's tricky for commissioners who are used to thinking at scale to then start to think about kind of individualised life courses. Coming down to looking at people individually, looking at what they actually need as individuals rather than, you know, big groups of people, or you know, as one you're saying there. Yeah. Yes, yes, because, you know, commissioners commissioned by service, you know, mm. X number of supported living, whatever. Mm. And actually it might be more about trying to trying to be tracking kind of individuals desires and what that means in terms of what what what's commissioned i'm really interested in the fact that you felt that things hadn't changed so much in, in 20 odd years you know what do you think the, why why is that what are the main reasons for that do you think chris um well i think the the sort of the general landscape of how people learn disabilities are supported um, hasn't changed that radically in 20 years, really. Um, I mean, our last sort of significant national strategy in England was valuing people, you know, mm. which was 2001, and then a refresh in 2009. So whatever tone has been set has been set by that. Um, you know, the CARE Act probably hasn't made the transformational change that it was originally envisaged to do. So I don't think, I don't think the landscape's that different. And in some respects, in terms of um, austerity, for example, I think the environment is more difficult now than it was 20 years ago. Mm. Certainly from a housing point of view, and you know, there are lots of barriers to housing, aren't there? And the current really you know, crazy ha- property market isn't helping yeah. getting hold of properties. That's making it very difficult for everybody, isn't it, as well? But I mean, that's only in the last couple of years. That's, that's been sort of more of an issue. Um, are, are there any other things that you think need to be implemented, Lauren, from talking to people, you know, I guess from a support point of view, you were saying that people, you know, felt that they weren't getting choice over the support they received and when they received it. Is there anything practical there that you think providers need to be thinking about? It's hmm. a good question. I'm not sure sort of how one goes about that. I think that's more sort of for the, the providers. But the thing that sort of stood out to me was around... Um, because we did ask people sort of when they moved in and what what it was like. And one of the things we found is often people would move house in an emergency or if there was something wrong with their previous house. Um, We did find other examples of people moving um, to sort of fulfill a goal, you know, to get their own place or to live with a partner, but this was a bit rarer. Um, So I would say one of my sort of suggestions would be having conversations about planning ahead, sort of what Chris was saying don't just assume if, if it's working for someone now, that's great. But in 10, 20 years, they might may want something different. And the, the sort of sooner you can start thinking about that and working towards that, the better. Um, and then you sort of reduce that need for having to find somewhere in an emergency and possibly rushing into something. Um, so yeah, just sort of having those conversations and, and thinking about it and letting people try things. You know, we had examples of people who would um, move with people they already lived with, but somewhere different because uh, they knew that they liked living with those people or they may move to a smaller property nearby to a larger property. So things like that, I think just um, giving people that choice and the opportunities to try things to sort of find what works for them. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? So people can explore and try different things. And and yeah, that really key message that people's life course changes as to what they what their aspirations and their hopes are and, and what they need at different times in their life, like all of us, exactly the same, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and also, sorry, just to add also about home ownership, 
you know, um, giving people the opportunity to, it's something that not many people spoke about. And I'm not sure if it's people weren't aware or it just wasn't something they thought about. But again, that's another thing that people may wish to sort of aspire to and, and be sort of supported towards. Were you finding that was a positive reaction from people who had that experience? I think the, the people that we did speak to who own their home, it was it worked really well for them because they knew that they were there. It's their, you know, it's their place. Um, they're going to be there as long as they want to. If they want to move, it's up to them. Mm. Um, it's just that control, really. Um, and it did seem to work really well when, but it, well, there weren't many people we spoke to. No, no. I think it's, it, yeah, I think it's quite complicated applying for, isn't it, and, and getting the process. Is that through the hold scheme that you're talking about? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Um, we'll put the details to that into the show notes as well if people aren't aware of it so that so they can explore it and look at it because you're right it's, I don't think it's used as much as it could be for, for some people absolutely thank you it's been really brilliant talking to you both and hearing all about your experiences and, and some really practical tips for people to take forward we'll put your contact details in the show notes along with the um, the findings in the website so people can find all of that stuff and I'm sure people can get in touch if they've got anything specific to ask you thank you both for your time today thank you thank you for listening today if you want to find out more please go to my website www.lisabrown.uk where you can download a free guide to supported living property